Hello and welcome to the Media Leader Podcast. I'm Omar Oaks, Editor-in-Chief of the Media Leader. And this week, we're going to talk about a big week for commercial radio as it celebrates its 50th anniversary. What has happened in all that time and what's due to happen over the next five decades? Also, the biggest media agency in the world. Could it be Brain Labs? That's what Daniel Gilbert, co-founder of Brain Labs and CEO, wants to achieve. Jack Benjamin talks about his interview with Dan and why it's an interesting time for a so-called new brood of agency. We'll also get into what's coming up at our landmark flagship Future of Media event next week, where I'll be speaking to people you might have heard of, such as Sir Martin Sorrell, Yannick Bollore, uh, Dominic Carter, and the great and the good of the UK media advertising industry discussing how to make it better it's going to be a builder first hello to jack a reporter for the media leader who specializes in covering publishing and social media hi jack how are you hello omar i'm doing well and i hope you're doing well from uh being locked away sadly in your in your own home as opposed to in the office in london with us uh yes i am cats out of the bag um yeah i've been home all week um with um covid um i feel fine um i was quite sick last weekend for a couple of days and i was slightly testing positive um as soon as i started feeling better i wanted to come back into the office and test myself again and the red line next to the t is now glowing it's like flashing at me so the viral load has increased but i feel fine well so, it's always um, yeah. darkest before the dawn mm-hmm. Uh, I hope so, um, but I should be I should be at the event next week. Um, but um, in publishing news, Jack, um, hedge fund um, millionaire Paul Marshall is reported to be part of a consortium planning to bid in this upcoming auction for the Daily and Sunday Telegraph, um, which is currently owned by Lloyd's Bank. Um, Marshall is, of course, one of the major shareholders of Ofcom's favorite TV broadcaster, GB News. Um, Jack, does this present some sort of conflict or should we be looking at this if he buys it more of a you know a flywheel effect um in the ever-changing world of right-wing media in the uk um what do you think is going on here Mm, well sir paul marshall's certainly in the running and uh ray snotty just wrote a a column for us this week about uh you know how the the threat of gb news which is uh under a lot of scandal at the moment and uh could lose its broadcast license if it keeps uh up its its excellent work is sort of hanging over his head as he's also looking to bid for the telegraph so uh that certainly doesn't send a very positive message um there's a few tidbits worth knowing about marshall specifically he's known politically for supporting the leave campaign uh at least ahead of the brexit referendum um he also has another news website already called unheard um i hope you have heard of it and if you haven't there you go um that was set up by tim montgomery in 2017 it's currently led by ex-yougov editor-in-chief freddie sayers um that's a bit more center than the telegraph uh would be um that's more like news opinion and analysis that that goes across the aisle at least in my opinion which is kind of rare these days um but as for marshall's bit of the telegraph um he's looking uh, to work with this u.s billionaire hedge fund manager ken griffin in the bid griffin himself is a sort of classical conservative american republican i.e not necessarily a big trump guy but uh, 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 so could be considered a sort of normal conservative in the U.S. if, if, if the, those exist anymore. Um, and the auction for the Telegraph was supposed to begin this month, but it hasn't started yet. Um, so there's a number of big figures outside of Sir Paul that are bidding. Um, I can actually just list them off. There's uh, Axel Springer, which owns Build, as well as Insider and Politico. 
Lord Rothermere's Daily Mail and General Trust uh, that obviously owns the mail. And if it bought the Telegraph, it would control more than half of the daily national newspaper market in the country. National World, which is owned by David Montgomery, that owns the Scotsman and the Yorkshire Post. Uh, News Corp is certainly going to be in the running. That's now being helmed by Lachlan Murdoch now that Rupert uh, has taken a step back. The Barclay family itself will almost surely try and buy back uh, the Telegraph as well. I don't know how likely that's going to happen. Um, and then there's also a number of other individuals that are looking to throw their hats in the ring. So you have William Lewis, who's an ex-Telegraph editor, ex-Lamond investor Daniel Kretinsky, and ex-Mail Online editor-in-chief Martin Clark. Um, all those players. So basically be, everyone. Basically everyone. everyone. Yeah, everyone. basically everyone. I mean, it's very rare that uh, something like the Telegraph comes up for purchase. But, you know, to get to your sort of point about the, the sort of flywheel effect of uh, maybe from Paul Marshall's standpoint specifically of, you know, sort of building upon what is still a relatively small but influential, increasingly influential outlet in GB News and that the Telegraph could add a significant, you know, uh, uh, extra news organization to his ownership. Um, you know, I don't know who's going to end up getting it, but I think that uh, Sir Paul has a lot on his plate at the moment, and I don't think that has uh, uh, is going to have a positive effect on his chances for the Telegraph, but ultimately it's who's going to fetch the highest price, um, who, who's going to be willing to put up the most for the Telegraph. I wouldn't be surprised to see this reach you know, much higher levels than than what it was originally rumored to get especially because the telegraph itself is in pretty good health as a business um not everyone's keen on it of course um raymond snoddy writing in the media leader this morning as we're recording on wednesday um a gb news channel mired in complaints with the threat of a license loss hanging over its head would not send out a great message for marshall's attempts to own one of the great national newspaper institutions of the right um we shall see um also joining us today is ella sagar the media leader's oracle and interpreter of what's going on in audio and out of home among other themes um now ella in out of home news of last week um the american security institute Commission, white collar crime cops um, got clear channel to cough up um, more than $26 million in fines to resolve charges that apparently clear channel bribed Chinese government officials in order to obtain outdoor ad contracts in violation of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. Um, Ella, why was this happening? What were they doing? Why was it happening? So this came out on Friday. And um, so clear channel outdoor, um, this actually dates back a couple of years. So this investigation has been going on for a really long time when Clear Channel Outdoor was part of iHeartMedia, which some of you might know owns a lot of radio stations in in, um, in the States. Um, and it went through bankruptcy and then kind of sold, got rid of, kind of separated from Clear Channel Outdoor and had this uh, subsidiary in China called Clear Media, um, which was majority owned by Clear Channel Outdoor at the time, but it's now not. Um, and that it turned out that Clear media had been that uh, had some dodgy dealings in terms of you know bribing officials as you mentioned and and other kind of um practices that clear channel outdoor raised the sec and kind of cooperated on that investigation with them and so it was a fine of yeah as you say 26.1 million dollars but i think about most of that fine was to do with the investigation itself and then six million was to do with the civil um kind of element to it as far as my understanding the civil penalty so yeah 20 million for the kind of disgorgement as it's called and then 6 million for this the civil penalty yeah but they've they kind of uh no longer have any dealings as far as i can tell with clear clear media they've sold its entire interest in that particular 
subsidiary in China. So they're not actually involved anymore in the business. Yeah. And um, I mean, it's 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 an interesting um, asterisk, I suppose, as part of and we've 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 talked about this before on the podcast, this this wider clear channel strategy to actually disinvest, to sell off its international businesses as it looks to become a US only company. Um, of course, listeners should all check out Ella's recent interview with Clear Channel's Europe CEO, Justin Cochrane, in which they talked about that. Um, talks about um, recently selling businesses in France and Spain. Um, and it'll be interesting to see what happens next. Um, now, if you can't tell, I am recording this while at home. <laughs> uh, but we are going to be together next week um, at the Future of Media alongside the movers and shakers in UK media and advertising. Um, we can't wait. Um, we've been working on it really um, hard over the last few weeks and months. Um, and we'll have lots to say about what we're going to be doing. Check out our episode at the beginning of next week in which columnist Nick Manning will be previewing some of the debates we'll be having. Um, something we did and I was very proud of last year for the first time. We actually um, got people in a room senior leaders, rising stars, and the wider delegate pool at Future Media to actually debate um, who are going what, what should be the, the, the key champion topics that the media leader should focus on in 2023. And as readers will know, those topics were talent, sustainability, and trust in media. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see um, when we run those debates again next week, um, what are going to be the hot topics. Um, Jack, what are you going to be doing at Future Media next week? And what are you most looking forward to? Yeah, well, I've got a, a number of panels lined up, uh, including two at the Future of Gaming, not just the Future of Media, which is uh, the afternoon uh, of the 12th that I'm really looking forward to. Um, I'll be sitting down with gaming reporter Shay Thompson to kick off that event with an overview of the gaming market, which uh, I've done a, a number of reporting uh, uh, reports on recently, um, highlighting sort of the, the state of the market, but also the, the big issues and wh why it's been so tough to crack over the last, you know, seven to 10, 15 years even uh, for advertisers and whether or not we're, we're at that sort of boiling point where, where now people are really feeling like they're going to jump in. Yeah, as I said, it's become a really interesting topic and I'm looking forward to that a lot. At the Future of Media, I'll also be talking with Boots about their biggest ever multimedia campaign, UT, about how they're using AI to drive personalization, as well as hosting a panel about the using the use of uh, creative media planning to help drive effectiveness. So I'm excited for all of that. Um, but I think, you know, as you mentioned, the, the, the debate um, is something I'm definitely looking forward to because it, it sets our agenda as as a publication for the whole next year what we need to be uh, focusing on and i'm sure we'll talk about lots of different issues of course as we always do but to, to know to get a sort of pulse for what the biggest issues are from our readers and, and, and from the audience is, is really important. So I'm looking forward to what people have to say. I'm really proud of these um, that we're able to do these debates and actually put quite difficult points of view forward because some of the issues that we, we talk about future media as well as in the publication, um, they are challenging for people working in advertising or media because trust is a big deal. Um, you know, ad fraud is a big deal. Um, but deep, you know, we, we've written recently about deep fakes and fake advertising. Um, this is, you know, these are uncomfortable topics for a lot of people. And I wouldn't want anyone to have the impression that the future of media, which has been going for three or four years now, is still a new event. Um, I wouldn't want you to have the impression that it's a load of ad executives and media owner salespeople getting together and slapping each other on the back and, you know, 
um, saying how wonderful things things are. This is an opportunity for people to really put forward points of view about how to make things better. And, that, and if if you look at the agenda on the Future of Media website, um, that's that's what's really driving it. And I'm really proud that we you know we, we're part of a business and a publication that allows us to do that. Um, so yeah, it's really important. Um, Ella, what are you going to be doing at Future of Media? I've got a bit of a range of things. So I'm going to be um, doing a panel um, about the power of news brand podcasts. And that's um, uh, with um, the kind of the with well, with David Marsden, who's head of audio at Evening Standard and Jess Austin, who presents a podcast of her own for Metro. And I think that'll be really interesting as a subgenre of podcast to see what the the nuances are there. And um, also a couple of panels on uh, the future of commerce media, which I think has definitely been uh, compared to say, I don't think this time last year we were talking about commerce media, or retail media in the same way. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see how how stuff's developed. Um, so sitting down with um, Elton Olahead, who it works ASOS. I spoke to him at the Future Brands, so it'll be which was back. Um, what was that in April, mm-hmm. May? So it'd be good to check in with him and see w- how things have moved on. And um, and there's a there's a few other um, bits about with uh, Bloomberg and Nokia about the power of original video. And so multimedia kind of covering all bases and and seeing um, what's next for those very different medium channels. Which I think speaks to the other what's different about future media this year is this whole concept of media 3.0. We've called it. Um, there's a there's a session, a series of sessions on one day I particularly like where we talk about media mixology, these different media channels and people who plan media actually thinking about how to use channels in ways that you might not have done five or 10 years ago. And I think whether we call it retail media or commerce media, that's just been a, a fascinating development over the last couple of years in terms of how the shopping experience um, is being rethought and you know retailers using their own data um, in interesting ways um, you know when we sit down for next future media 2024 um, that uh, that whole thing is going to be even bigger I suspect um, personally I'm really looking forward to interviewing Yannick Bolloré for the first time, he's the chairman and CEO of Havas and Vivendi. Um, and it's, you know, Vivendi is a really interesting business, which for years, you know, this big French media conglomerate, you know, has kind of cobbled acquisitions together opportunistically, I think it's fair to say. And they've ended up with this company where if you look at it on paper, it looks really interesting. So they've got Havas, the ad agency, media agency, um, Universal Music Group, Canal Plus, um, they've got stakes in Viaplay, Vivo. They've just bought like Gardere. Is that La Gardere or La Gardere, uh, Ella? I'd need to know the spelling. <laughs> <laughs> one of those. One of those. One of those. I think La Gardere um, sounds nice, I think. La Gardere. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, it owns Hachette, it's big, um, big um, French publishing giants, um, which wasn't easy for them, by the way, because it raised uh, competition flags. Um, so, you know, why are we talking to Yannick? I mean, 
all of this stuff, all of these opportunities, all these potential synergies, how do you make sense of it? Um, how does, you know, uh, ad agency group like Havas, which isn't as big as WPP or Omnicom and those giants, um, how do they stand out when everyone's kind of singing similar songs about integration and the power of creativity? Um, you know, Havas actually has links to all of these interesting media owner companies. So um, there's, um, there's a lot of interesting potential stuff to talk about. Um, plus, Havas is just one shell. Um, that's just caused yeah, a lot of debate. Ask, uh, are you going to ask Yannick about that? Well, it, it, um, I think we have to, right? Um, our most read piece, incidentally, last week was by friend of the show, Simon Akers, um, who wrote about you know the furore that Havas had got over winning this um, shell uh, global accounts and uh, you know his argument was essentially the industry needs to take a hard look at itself if people are going to complain about ad agencies working for fossil fuel companies i know that's going to generate a lot of debate even around this table yeah. um but yeah if um, you're interested to know more check out that interview um, i'm also looking forward to interviewing um sir martin sorrel uh and um dominic carter who is um publisher the sun at news uk so yeah that's future of media next week um, but this week, as I mentioned already, si Sunday marks commercials, Commercial Radio's 50th anniversary in the UK. And Ella, you've been marking um, this um, occasion by publishing interviews with some of the biggest leaders in UK radio. Um, of course, the first commercial radio broadcast was on the 8th of October, 1973 from LBC Studios. Um Ella, you spoke to LBC's current managing editor, as well as Global, the parent company, uh, the commercial director there for audio. Tell me, what has changed since LBC went from London only to national in 2014? You might remember it was London's biggest conversation, mm -hmm. and now it's leading Britain's conversation. Yeah. So what's changed since 2014? Yeah, exactly. I mean, so I spoke to Tom Cheel, who's the current managing, senior managing editor at LBC. Uh, he described the going national in 2014 is like putting rocket fuel under the brand. And I think the other um, interesting addition was that they were the first uh, radio station to introduce HD cameras into the studios. And obviously a lot of us will have seen like the snackable clips of various presenters. For me, it just comes up as James O'Brien. I think that's just the algorithm, but maybe for other people, it's Nick Ferrari. <laughs> me too, and, me too, actually. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so to have those kind of uh, the radio uh, presenters on camera, um, and and then across social media and having that shift. So those are two, kind of the big the big changes. And then yeah, I spoke to him about um, Andrew Marr joining uh, the LBC uh, family. He's also got a, a show on Classic FM. But um, uh, apparently Marr is a TikTok surprise TikTok hit now. So he gets over <laughs> a million hits on on TikTok on his videos. Wow. Um, and uh, so that I think there's there's that's that's all quite interesting. A radio, as you talk about media mixology, kind of with social and radio, kind of seem to uh, like help each other. And um, and I think that's 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 something that's really interesting. And Katie Bowden, who's um, as you mentioned, Global's um, director for commercial audio, she was saying that obviously going from a London only station to a national station, it opened up the door to lots of more advertisers who wanted a national reach. And so it wasn't, it kind of was quite uh, good for, for listeners and for advertisers, basically. It wasn't just global you spoke to, you spoke to uh, News UK's head of audio as well. Um, News UK, really interesting company. So they've got this uh, division news broadcasting now, where, of course, they bought Wireless Group a few years ago. 
uh, Talk Sport, Talk Radio, and now they've launched Talk TV off the back of that. They've also launched Times Radio. They got this new broadcast studio at their offices um, opposite the Shard in London Bridge. Um, lots going on from their perspective. So what are they saying about how commercial radio has developed? Um, what adjustments have they had to make to, I guess, address the growing commercial market? Yeah, I think news broadcasting is quite an interesting one. Um, and they, because they have, I mean, I think because they they acquired TalkSport and that was, and um, they, a few other stations and then launched Times Radio. They kind of have also launched um, under News UK Talk TV and they try and get Talk Radio and Talk TV to be quite synergistic and use the same content. And so they've also introduced this year, what I found quite interesting was what Denny Morris, who's the um, director of audio, um, he was telling me every morning, everyone from every radio station and the, the big publications like The Sun, The Times, they come in and we all have a big editorial meeting which um, uh, to talk about what all the stories were happening that day and how they were going to like talk about it on different... On, uh, so, oh, okay, this big Lionesses match is happening. What can we use from TalkSport across Times Radio, across this and this? So they're truly like mixing all of the brands together. And that's something that David Wilcox, who is the, um, their commercial director for audio, he was saying that they're not radio stations anymore. They are media brands. So, and TalkSport is the furthest along on that, on that um, kind of uh, path, as he called it. And then also with Bauer, they've launched Octave, which is their kind of digital audio initiative, um, opens up a lot of first party data and targeting and and is growing uh, with new segment audiences all the time. So there's a few things there. And the other one was video and multi-channel talent, kind of similar to LBC, but that they want everybody to be across all these different, uh, all the talent to be on on camera and going across social and which I think is the direction that radio is moving in. Yes, and that's a really good point, actually. Um, I'll just um, do a spoiler alert for our, um, the um, podcast we're going to publish next week um, with Nick Manning pre previewing Future Media. And um, Jack, you hosted that one. And um, you, you you asked uh, Nick and myself what uh, what radio stations we listen to. And we both <laughs> said that we didn't. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, everyone listening. Um, but it, it is true. However, Ellis just reminded me of a really good point that even though I'm not tuning into to LBC, I am consuming quite a bit of James O'Brien content when I actually consider it. But it's coming to me; it is coming to me via YouTube, and it's probably coming to a lot of people, and not just LBC, but it could be Times Times Radio as well. Um, coming to them from Twitter. You mentioned um, Andrew Marr being a TikTok star. I bet other radio personalities now find themselves becoming quite famous online in ways that aren't through traditional radio consumption. Um, so it's a fascinating look on not just how the market has changed um, commercially, but also technologically and in terms of what talent is doing and just how these media businesses are just changing. I mean, do you think having spoken to these different radio companies, Ella, um, do you get the sense that if you were to do maybe a similar thing for 60 years of commercial radio, that a lot of what has happened over the last couple of years will still need to bed in 
and not much will will have changed or do you think that so much is happening that we still further a lot of further change and we can't even envisage what's going to happen with radio because it feels like a lot has happened is it going to continue happening or we kind of can breathe now (laughs) um yeah i guess there's been a lot of change in a very short space of time you know when radio was first kind of introduced into the car and then and then and then first kind of not just in like a living room setting and then outside of that and then it's on your phone and all of these different things so i think some of that felt like it was happening gradually and with these changes i think that i think that with radio and digital it is there is going to be a lot more that needs to there's going to be a lot of stuff with ai as well that is probably going to change how production works how distribution works and i don't think maybe in 10 years time um there we'll still be kind of seeing the ripple effects um i think radio center has updated its remit to include which is the trade body for commercial radio i should mention uh, matt payton the ceo kind of came on our podcast earlier this year and was talking about why they've updated their remit to not just include linear radio but also um podcasts and digital from commercial broadcasters because it's and streaming um just because it's it's what commercial broadcasters are doing they're just kind of taking in more and more they're doing more and more stuff um so we'll i think that's only going to continue so but uh you know people smart speaker listening was something that was mentioned by everybody um uh, that I interviewed that that was a really exciting opportunity so we'll see where that goes as well yeah and the 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 consumption of radio on smart speakers over the last few years in the UK has just it's been a dramatic um changeover from people listening to analog and DAB onto smart speaker um so yeah I suspect you're absolutely right about that the the development of um the 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 the, the technology and what people are consuming audio on is going to play a major role and AI as well I suspect um Ella wasn't the only person conducting major interviews for the media leader this week um Jack you also sat down with Brain Labs's global CEO Dan Gilbert um What's going on at Brain Labs at the moment? And what is Dan hoping to accomplish? Yeah, well, it was a really great conversation with Dan. Um, so Brain Labs just got a major investment um, from Falfurius Capital Partners, I believe is the venture capital firm. Um, uh, so I, there hasn't been an official number that's come out uh, about the valuation of the investment, but it's in the hundreds of millions, according to uh, other reporting. Um, so I sat down with Dan and, and basically he, he wants to use that, that influx of cash for a few things. Um, number one, to continue their sort of inorganic expansion and growth. So over the past few years, since they, since 2019, when they got their initial, uh, uh investment, um, I think it was living bridge partners, mm-hmm. yep. um, they, uh, have gone out and acquired a number of, of firms. Um, I think the number is probably close to a dozen Closer to a dozen than 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 five, let's say. I mean, it, it's it's a it's a significant expansion, and it's also happening all around the world. So, what was once just a UK focused company then became a frankly a US focused company with also UK focus, and then they've added footprints in APAC and uh, are looking to expand elsewhere. So that's what he wants to do with the money: is continue looking at M and A options. Um, he named specifically countries like Germany, um, China. Uh, uh, India, Australia, um, Japan as as these big markets that they can start building out more hubs in. They don't need to be in every single country in the world is what he says. But, uh, you know, 
the big hubs is where they can sort of start to, to really see some more growth. Um, and he's also looking to use that investment on additional, talk about AI, um, so that they'll be investing in AI um, and also investing in talent. I mean, trying to lure away a, a, as much great talent that the industry has. Um, perhaps, you know, he didn't name anyone in, in particular, but, you know, perhaps from larger agency groups that are looking for something a little bit more nimbler, who knows. Um, but it always helps when you can afford to pay them the big bucks. Well, that's, yeah, that's a quite interesting part of the story, isn't it? Because um, I've, um, uh, interesting development of Brain Labs, who are, you know, they, part of this new breed of digital marketing agency that's cropped up over the last decade mm. in the UK. Um, mm. It's it's peers, I suppose, would be S4 Capital, founded by Sir Martin Sorrell, um, Jellyfish, which has just been acquired by David Jones's company, Brandtech Group, um, Crowd, the, the, the people with the Crowdy network. Um, but what's interesting is um, the recent involvement of Stephen Allen, who's very much from the older world. He's the co-founder of what is now Essence Mediacom, the UK's biggest media agency. Um, I'm interested to know what does Gilbert have to say about him? What's his impact been since working with Brain Labs? And you mentioned the people that might come into Brain Labs now, but what about, there seems to have been quite a lot of senior people that have left. I'm thinking of people like Matt Adams, who used to run Havas Media, Joe Lyle, was the CEO, wasn't she? I mean, there seems to be a lot of turnover. Yeah, in the last 12 months alone, I think there were the, the, both the US and UK CEOs left. Um, you mentioned Matt Adams. There's definitely been some to- turnover at the top. Um, you know, Dan declined to, to talk about, you know, outgoing people specifically. Um, but what he did say is that, you know, Stephen Allen has had a transformational, dif- uh, made a transformational difference to the business since he came on. It's been... Uh, just under two years, he, he joined in November of 2021, and you mentioned, yeah, he you know, so he was a uh, founder of MediaCom, brought that to uh, from small beginnings to become the biggest media agency in the world, and um, that experience has served uh, Dan and his team very well. Um, he mentioned that uh, uh, between Dan and Stephen, uh, they say that they have 24/7 coverage. Of, of their business because they are clearly workaholics and Stephen included Stephen works really late into the night and, and Dan wakes up really early in the morning. And so, uh, you know, I'm glad that I'm not a CEO, <laughs> I guess, put it that way. One day, one day, yeah, perhaps one day, but, um, but yeah, so, so Stephen's made a big difference. I think, I think the way that he described it is that, uh, um, Brain Labs has gone from a you know digital performance agency challenger to become you know a full fledged media agency just in the past few years, and a lot of that's through M and A, but a lot of that's also through the leadership of someone like Stephen, um, you know, putting in place the the right people and the right organizational structure in order to make that happen as efficiently as a po- as possible because it's been. Uh, you know, gangbusters, 800% growth is how, how they would describe it um, in just a few years, just since 2019. So uh, that doesn't happen without uh, inevitably some some turnover. I'm sure any company would probably attest to that. So I think, um, again, you know, this isn't Dan saying that, but that's sort of my read on, on what's gone on at Brain Labs. Uh, yes, um, read the interview, of course, at themedialeader.co.uk. Um, that one was published on Monday this week. Um, and another piece um, you wrote about last week, which is worth flagging, especially since, as you say, Future of Gaming is a big part of Future of Media next week, is 
um, sports teams and leagues increasingly seeing an increase in, in interesting gaming advertising. Um, briefly, why are sports investors putting more money behind gaming ad tech companies? Yeah, I think it's become uh, increasingly, I would say obvious to them, but um, uh, important for them to uh, look at gaming because you know sports audiences are like any all TV audiences are. I'm not I'm not saying declining, but when you're trying to reach really young fans and maybe they're not really watching games on television anymore because they don't watch television anymore, um, you, you might be losing some audiences. But where young people uh, are is video games, and the same goes to be fair. Like everyone's on playing video games, and it's like three billion worldwide. It, it's you know, Omar's shaking his head. He doesn't play video games. He's a big grumpy guy. He didn't grow up on video games. I grew up on video games. It's a big audience, but uh, the sports games in particular. I grew, I grew up on popular. a Sega Master System. Have you ever heard of a Sega Master System? Mm, yes. uh, no, I know the Sega Dreamcast. I oh, it's way older than that. Uh, <laughs> so I I I grew up on uh, you know like what PlayStation. What's your first console? PlayStation. Yeah. Which uh, PlayStation? Uh, first console I had was a PlayStation Two. Oh, okay. Which is <laughs> mine was yeah. a PlayStation One. <laughs> I can yeah, I, I know I can hear the audience laughing at me as well. I'm a very young guy, um, <laughs> but I played a lot of sports games growing up, and those are some of the most popular games uh, still today. You know, the likes of FIFA, which is no longer, no longer called be, FIFA. It's no longer allowed to be called FIFA, so it's EA Sports FC, EA Sports Football Club, or something like that. Everyone's still going to call it FIFA. Yeah. <laughs> Um, FIFA, the, the artist formerly known as FIFA, um, <laughs> Madden, MLB, the show, NBA 2K. These are big games. Um, the opportunity from an advertising perspective is that gaming ad tech has developed significantly in the past few years to the point where, um, on certain games, you can much more easier, uh, much more easily put in, uh, advertising into those games, like, a like a digital billboard basically. And, you know, I, I've gone back and forth asking lots of people in the gaming ad tech space, well, gamers surely aren't going to enjoy looking at ads plastered all over their games. And, and they'll concede that for a lot of games, that actually probably is the case. It's not going to make sense to put ads in a fantasy game, but it does make sense to put ads in a sports game. So, you know, they're trying to make a, a more realistic looking stadium. Well, there's ads plastered all over the stadium anyway. So let's bring those ads in. And from the perspective of sports teams, um, they then can go to their brand partners and be like, look, this is a new opportunity to make sure you're reaching the audiences that you want to reach. And it's a win-win for, for basically everyone. Uh, and gamers included is what they would argue. I would argue probably doesn't make much of a difference to gamers, but, uh, you know, it does, it would create a more realistic situation. So you have the likes of a number of us sports teams in particular, uh, Fenway group, which owns Liverpool, uh, FC, but also owns the Boston Red Sox. Um, I spoke with Marquee Ventures, which is technically not related to the Chicago Cubs officially. It's um, but your team. That is my that is my baseball <laughs> team. I, I, if you can't tell, I really enjoyed writing this piece. <laughs> um, Marquee Ventures is the investment arm of the owners of the Chicago Cubs, so it's technically a separate entity, but also can leverage all of the links to the, the Cubs ownership. Um, and and you know they're you know, bullish. I mean, I think. Obviously, from an investment strategy, there there are concerns with the investment. You know, it could it could pan out to to not work that well. Um, you know, gaming's been a tough market to crack, but 
they think the tech's there and really all that's left is the communication aspect. So I'm looking forward to, uh, to, to talk about all of that at the Future Gaming. Well, um, I was actually going to um, round this conversation off by asking um, you, um, why are you passionate about media? And um, I think it's an important question. I wrote about this in a column recently where we reference some of the interviews we've done in this this conversation. But as we continue to do interviews, I do think it's important for us you know, the people who cover media and advertising to actually ask people who work in this industry and make big decisions when given the opportunity, you know, why are you passionate about media? Because I think um, that passion word, for me anyway, um, distills a lot of what is really good in our industry. You know, is it about, you know, unlocking creativity or getting people to express themselves through whether it's television, audio, social media, um, but you know what's behind that, you know, or is it just all about making money or you know trying to leverage some sort of political influence? Um, those definitely wouldn't be answers to why someone would be passionate about media. Um, those would be probably cynical reasons. Um, so I think I think it's a, at the very least an interesting question to ask. Um, but you know, Caesar's wife and all that. Um, what? Let me ask you guys first of all why why are you passionate about media what 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 are you doing here what why are you <laughs> writing about you know and doing all these interviews um Ella put you on the spot what 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 what's your passionate for media come put from me on the spot I mean it is a really varied industry and I think coming in two years ago and seeing all of the stuff and the nuts and bolts that goes on behind like an article or a radio broadcast or a campaign or anything and everything that goes on behind it, it it's yeah it's fascinating I think that's and the variety of it is is really um just so many different mediums that have different superpowers that's that's really interesting to me but that's my on the spot <laughs> random answer yeah Jack how about you yeah well I think um everything is media right you can't ha- you can't understand human experience without understanding media certainly today I mean I we look at the world through screens but even if you're just walking around, you'll see billboards, it, all the content we consume, you know, we go to work to then, you know, well, I enjoy coming to work, but a lot of people go to work to then come home and relax. And usually that means interacting with some sort of yeah. media. So it's, it, it's a part of our lives constantly. Um, advertising obviously plays a role in that. Um, but, you know, it, so I enjoy understanding the business end and the commercial interests that then create the media that we fall in love with and that uh, dictate uh, what we want to do with our time. Um, and then of course I, I have a, a political, ba- political educational background. So I'm always interested in how it's affecting real world policy. Um, the fourth estate is so interesting, uh, especially right now, um, uh, because, you know, some would argue that at least certainly in the U S it's going through a really difficult time. Publishers are going through a really difficult time. So that's why I like, I'm really passionate about reporting on publishers and and the social media companies that have drawn their ire in in certainly in recent years so um yeah lots of passion i think uh you you can't um um if, if you if you care about people uh which hopefully we all do but i would say i do then you have to care about media that's so much more eloquent than what i said 
<laughs> I was I was really trying to outdo you. <laughs> uh, you you you're fine, um, Ella. And um, even if you weren't, we could always edit it afterwards. <laughs> the beauty of media that isn't live. Um, for me personally, I mean, um, I touched on this in my column this week. Hundred percent media, zero percent nonsense. Where I talked about the fact that um, I'm leaving Twitter finally. Um, I've had enough. It's been a year now of Elon Musk's reign of clownishness. Um, and it, we shouldn't even call it Twitter now. It's X. Um, and I finally, um, they finally gave me my data this morning. So I deactivated my account. So it's definitely official. Um, and, you know, interesting, we, we have the media leader on Twitter. And um, you better believe that I'm actively thinking about whether we continue doing that. And if so, what do we continue to do? Because um, one of the reasons is not just because Elon Musk has um, um, been such a terrible steward of this company. And, you know, essentially he's running it into the ground, advertising down 60, 60% year on year, um, got rid of the safety team, um, has made the user experience so bad that there's no point even tweeting unless you have a blue tick anymore because nobody sees it. Um, so it's quite sad to, you know, I was on Twitter since 2009 and a lot of the, it's worth remembering talking about this conversation about passion, that a lot of the, the, the goodwill that Twitter has had, at least among, you know, the Twitterati, the journalists um, over the last decade is that, you know, it, it really did feel at the time, like remember the Arab Spring was happening, that something interesting, something really interesting was happening with the internet and digital media and unlocking, democratizing new people who weren't established journalists already, who weren't celebrities, but could interact with celebrities. And it really felt like something interesting was happening. Um, and there's no other way to look at it than this company is really effed it up. Um, not really ever serious about content moderation. Um, it's interesting as we're speaking, Jeremy Gorman, who was Netflix's Worldwide head of advertising has just left her job. Another company which has entered into, you know, digital media advertising and didn't, you know, seems to not really have had a plan of how to do it well. You know, Twitter, just a load of display ads and not really any commercial ventures that were really excited advertisers. So it can never really leverage what was always a small but highly engaged user base. And I just think that if you're not going to be passionate about media in the first place, you have a really clear idea about why you're doing this and what stories you want to tell and how you can do creativity in different ways, I think you're always going to be struggling. And I think we're, we're seeing this now in this, this latest chapter about digital tech, Silicon Valley media, where um, the, the passion hasn't ever been there. The, advert, the the passion for advertising anyway has never really been there. It's always been a means to an end. Uh, oh, okay, I guess we've got to do it. And which is why um, a lot of the issues we'll discuss at Future of Media is why they rear their heads. And I think that's at the nexus, that's that's at the core of a lot of these issues. Um, so, I'm, so I'm passionate about media because it's, you know, it's fun and it gives me lots to write about and talk about. So <laughs> if, if you're not passionate about can... media, at least you can be passionate about hating Twitter, right? Mm -hmm. and I think, even... well, I don't, well, I don't have to, it's, it's not my problem, I'm not <laughs> part of it. So yeah. yeah. Um, follow me on LinkedIn for the time being. Um, anyway, um, we've got to leave it there. Thank you so much. Um, I always, uh, it's always good to be in a room and just talk about what we're, we're, we're writing and thinking about. Um, 
I, I really appreciate it. So thank you, team. Um, a reminder again, we'll all be at Future of Media next week. Please say hello if you're coming. If you're not coming, why not? Um, as well as the Future of Gaming on day two. Um, this is all happening on the 11th and 12th of October at Convene, which is in Bishopsgate in the heart of the city of London. Um, if you haven't purchased your tickets yet, uh, you can go online to register at adwantedevents.com slash futureofmedia. Thanks, Ella and Jack, for joining me. And thank you, listeners, for listening. Um, we're going to make these conversations a regular part of our content offer in the near future. So if you like the episode, please feel free to share. Until next time, bye-bye. 